Okay then, here we are now with Chapter 5 in our series, Impressions of Grace and Grit. And this chapter is called A Universe Within. And it begins with a beautiful quote which Treya wrote, which I'll read to you. It's sort of like a personal reflection or a poem. This was written almost ten years before she even met Ken Wilbur. So allow me to read it to you. Why in the past I have wanted to travel so much? Why do I feel so constrained when I can't just pick up and go? I twist in this new form, resist, feel confined. I squirm, wonder if this is, after all, really just another search for inner God displaced and sought out there. If I let myself live more freely within myself, a whole being, on my side, in support of myself completely, perhaps the foreign land will emerge within myself, strange sights and smells and thoughts swirling inside, pulling me into another land that begs to be experienced and felt and shared with others and shaped and moulded in some ways that satisfies that deep need. an African bazaar within my belly, incense-soaked Indian temple festooned with monkeys in my chest, high white Himalayan expanses with endless sky. In my head, limbos dancing to balmy Jamaican breezes, the louver, the sorbonne, washed down with a cafe Oh, Laut, this planet, our home, a tiny land in my heart. There is a universe within you. And this has been said by many. Some say it's, well the inner world. But the deeper you go, the more you realize that the world is actually bigger than a world. It's a universe. There are multiple worlds. And the way in which we explore that inner universe the universe within is through meditation. And both Ken and Treya, well, they're seasoned meditators. They have been on the path of meditation for over a decade at this point in our narrative as we follow along this plot. And Ken Wilbur 
has a wonderful way of explaining what meditation is. So I'd like to read to you what he says in answer to the question, what is meditation? And he says this, There are many ways to explain meditation. What it is, what it does, how it works. Meditation, it is said, is a way to evoke the relaxation response. Meditation, others say, is a way to train and strengthen awareness, a method for centering and focusing the self, a way to halt constant verbal thinking and relax the body-mind, a technique for calming the central nervous system, a way to relieve stress, to bolster self-esteem, reduce anxiety, and alleviate depression. All of those are true enough. Meditation has been clinically demonstrated to do all of those things. But I would like to emphasize that meditation is, and always has been, a spiritual practice. Meditation, whether Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, Taoist, or Muslim, was invented as a way for the soul to venture inward, there ultimately to find a supreme identity with Godhead. The kingdom of heaven is within, and meditation from the very beginning has been the royal road to that kingdom. Whatever else it does, and it does many beneficial things, meditation is first and foremost a search for the God within. I'd say a little bit of time after the whole New Atheists had their spot in the limelight, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris and Dan Dennett, there was this popular phrase floating around, which was spiritual but not religious. And that would be for someone who is, well, they're sort of atheist, but they still have sort of some inclination, some inclined tendencies towards things that are mystical. And it was quite a popular phrase. It was quite quite a good phrase, quite a good thing to distinguish between spiritual and religious. And, well, Wilbur distinguishes exactly that. He says Mahatma Gandhi is spiritual, but Oral Roberts is religious. Albert Einstein, Martin Luther King, Albert Schweitzer, Emerson and Thoreau, St. Teresa of Alva, Dame Julian of Norwich, William James. These are spiritual leaders. Billy Graham, Archbishop Sheen, Robert Schuller, Pat Robinson, Cardinal O'Connor. These are some religious leaders. And what's the difference? What's the difference there? Well, if you don't know enough about these people, if these names are foreign to you, let's make it a bit more simple. Spiritual is concerned with the deepest nature of the subjective experience. Religion is concerned with beliefs, traditions, and dogma 
And in a very far-off ranging sense, these two things are actually related. There is a reason why we have these two polarities. There's a reason that organized there's a, there's a reason why organized religion is born out of a individual subjective spirituality. But for the purposes of actually making your way into an understanding, it's very important to distinguish these two clearly. Meditation is spiritual, prayer is religious. When you meditate, you say, okay, I'm having this experience. Let's, with an open mind and a sense of curiosity, try and work out for myself what it is. And if there's a technique, we can break it down into a smaller size and work on just that. Or we can focus on a part of your experience, for example. Now, in prayer, we're saying, well, thank you, God. Please help me, God. Acknowledge these things, God. I need to say these things, God. That's totally different. These are totally different things. Now, there is a prayer which is esoteric and it borders into, it it breaks into a transformative practice and it becomes almost like a meditative practice. That's not the type of prayer we're talking about. Religious prayer is concerned with, oh, poor old me in this small human condition talking to a big man in the cloud who is all-powerful and has a beard, and he's listening. So that's the difference between meditation and prayer. So, Treya and Ken, well, well, Ken has this interview, and it turns out the uh, they're, they're interviewing him for some pamphlet or magazine or for his book or something. I don't know what they're interviewing him for, but whatever. He's famous. He has interviews every now and then. But the interviewees can't make it for some reason because of scheduling. So Treya says, all right, I'll do the job for them. Send us your questions and I'll read them. And she also adds some of her questions. So now we have this sort of back and forth conversation between Ken and Treya where it's sort of like this interview style of trying to work out, you know, what, what, what are your beliefs, Ken Wilbur? What do you believe? And, and she sort of gets this, this, at one point, this really good sort of devil's advocate tone to her. And she's like, well, how do you know spirituality is real and this sort of thing? So let's go through this. This is some heavy stuff. And... It's very much to Treya's credit for being able to keep up with this because it's quite dense and what a woman to be able to have such a mind as to keep up with Ken Wilbur because, well, well, let's see how we go through it because we'll see where we break down because I struggle with this. I know we're on the, the edges of our cognitive ability and our deepest stretches, so Get your thinking caps on. <laughs> this is big mind conversation coming up. So just picture this. Ken Wilbur sitting on the on the couch talking to his wife. All right? 
And this is the conversation they have. She asks by asking about the perennial philosophy. And he says the perennial philosophy is the worldview that has been embraced by the vast majority of the world's greatest spiritual teachers. Really? Something that all the world's spiritual teachers believe in and agree on? Yes. Even as far as East, as Mexico, sorry, West as Mexico, as it is to East in Japan, and everything in between, there are things that they all agree on, really. You mean Hinduism, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Taoism, Jainism, Confucianism. They all have something in common? They all share things? Really? What on earth could they have in common? And these, well, these points that they do have in common is the perennial philosophy, the, uni- the universal truths, the universal experience of a collective humanity that has everywhere agreed to certain profound truths about the human condition and its access to the divine. That's what the perennial philosophy is. And she says, well, what about this argument that knowledge is molded by language and culture? Like knowledge has linguistic structures, which are different for each language, right? They have different cognitive shapes as such. So how can the world religions agree when, well, hang on a second, they're all in different languages, So how can they agree at all if they're in different languages? And she says, well, there's no human condition. There's only human history. So we're talking about a priori knowledge here. And he says, well, there's actually a lot of truth to that. But this is his answer. This is what he says. We've got two kinds of structure. We've got deep structures and surface structures structures. And the example he uses is the human body, which has 200 bones, 208 bones, one heart, two kidneys, one head, a pair of eyes, a pair of ears, two feet, and so on. So these are deep structures. But then there are surface structures. So that's like clothing style or skin color or the shapes of the hands. And you can have things like cultural surface structures like Chinese foot binding and the African lip stretching. Have you ever seen this? Have you seen these African tribes that just jump on an image search and look at this? This is so freaky. Oh, you don't want to be having your meal when you look at this. It's a bit weird. They put these things in their bottom lips, which stretch them out. And there's one. There's one of this mother who has such a big stretched lip that she could put it over the head of her child. (laughs) How about that? So every human being has lips and yet (laughs) the actual shape of the lips 
is different for every human being and they have a cultural inflection. So that's the example of the difference. That's one example of the difference between deep structures being the lips and surface structures being the shape of the lips. And when it comes to clothing, you would say, well, clothing covers the bottom half and the top half. There's winter clothing and summer clothing. There's clothing for the front, for the back. There's clothing for style, clothing for shelter. And these are sort of deep structures. But then the more nuanced details... The finer details would be the surface structures of clothing. And that's the body. That's the physical realm. That's the body. The first level, if it was, if you were. And then we come to the second level, which is of the mind. And he says, well, actually, the same thing of deep structures and surface structures occurs in the mind as well. Because all minds across cultures have the capacity to form images, symbols, concepts, and rules, for example. Now, the particular images vary greatly from culture to culture. In fact, you could say that there's, when we get to the level of the mind, there's even more difference. There's even more variety in the surface structures. Whether you think of it this way, how many there there are a certain amount of different shapes of lips. Right? There's a different set of lips for every human being. But then when it comes to the mind, well then there's a different shape of lips or the image of lips for every thought. And maybe not every thought is different. Maybe it's there are similar thoughts or the same thoughts. But you can see that in the mind, there's a lot more variation for differences in surface structures. So just as the human body universally grows hair, the human, human mind universally grows ideas. And that's the second level. Now, when we get to the third level, body, mind, soul, The human spirit universally grows intuitions of the divine. And it's those intuitions that are at the core of the perennial philosophy. They're at the core of the things that all the world's great religious traditions agree on. The universal truths the principles. So it's very important you understand the difference between deep structure and surface structure. Because when we're talking about the perennial philosophy, these principles, or tenets, as we might call them, are deep structures. And every religion has a different surface structure to each of those deep structures. So she says, 
Okay. At first glance, Buddhism and Christianity have basically got nothing to agree on, so give us some actual examples. How many points are there that they can agree on? How many tenets are there in the perennial philosophy? And he says there are dozens. Really? There are dozens of things that Christians and Buddhists can agree on? You've got to be kidding me. And he says, okay, well, let's just work with like the, the five or six main ones. We won't go through a dozen of them. We'll only half fry your brain for today. <laughs> well, he doesn't say that. I'm, I'm putting that in. This is just how my impression is. And actually, that reminds me of a, a thing I wanted to say about format is that I'm doing these quotes and I'm weaving these quotes in and out of what we're talking about. And... If it's a long quote, I leave a silence at the start and at the end. But if it's a short quote, I'll just weave it in by saying, he says. And then it doesn't matter too much if you can follow where the quote ends. But here, here we're doing it. This is a raw kind of commentary. We're not, we're not trying to be scholarly here. So we're not going to be transcribing what I'm saying and putting it into a book or anything like that. If we were doing that, then well, the, then you'd be able to see where the quotations are. But don't worry too much about following what's a quote or what's not. It's just simply weaving our discussion with what's said here. So here we go. Here are some of the most important tenets of the perennial philosophy. Number one, spirit exists. Number two, spirit is found within. Number three, most of us don't realize this spirit within. Number four, there is a way out of this fallen state from realizing spirit. Number five, this results in a rebirth or enlightenment. Number six, this rebirth marks the end of suffering and sin. Which seven brings about social action with mercy and compassion. So here we have rebirth and enlightenment as the same as a surface structure example of a deep structure. So rebirth would be the Christian, well, well it's Buddhism. But born again, rebirth, born again is in Christianity as well. And enlightenment is in Buddhism. So we've got enlightenment and salvation for Buddhism and Christianity. And rebirth for Christianity and reborn for Buddhism. Phew, okay, so how are we going to unpack all that? Let's go through them in more detail. That is a lot of information. That's what Treya says as well. She says, that's a lot of information. Let's go over them one at a time. Number one, spirit exists. There is a supreme reality. There is only one reality. Brahma 
Kether, Dao, Allah, Shiva, Yahweh, Aton. They call him many who is really one. But how do you know spirit exists? And this is where we get to the importance of experience. Because these claims of oneness are not beliefs or ideas. They're things that you can discover for yourself subjectively. And the people who are the, the heads of these, these religions, of the perennial philosophy, we call mystics. So it's not just dogmatic beliefs, it's leadership through find your own way. And, well, the scientific mind comes along and says, well, how can you trust their experience? How do you know that their experience is real? Isn't that a bit, you know, it's just, oh, I'll just take your word for it sort of thing? And Ken says, well, yes, but any experience is like that. Think of, think of a sunset or eating a piece of cake or listening to music. To experience that for yourself, you have to actually experience it. There's no way describing eating a cake is ever going to replace eating a piece of cake. But that shouldn't mean that now, therefore, a sunset and eating cake and listening to music are no valid experiences. They don't exist. And there are many things like that. And the other example he says is, well, judo can be taught but not spoken. So when you go to have judo lessons, you don't, you don't read a textbook. You're not sitting in a desk with the teacher up the front telling you a bunch of terms and you're memorizing lines or writing. That's, that's, not, how you, that's not how you learn judo. You're in your, your outfit and you're in the, the gym, you're in the sparring ring and you're actually hands-on moving. And he's saying now, he or she is saying, now move your arm like this, or you see how we twisted like this, and you see how this process went like this. And he's, he is talking, he or she is talking, but it's also hands-on. It's experiential. It's experiential learning. It's interactive learning. So depending on the nature of what is trying to be given across, or how do we say taught? I want to say taught, but I want to. I also want to say something else. It's more like allowing something to emerge. It depends on, or or gives, puts the limit on how words are useful. So far from pulling down the mystics' claims that. You can't use experience or personal experience to say that something is true or not. Well, it actually raises their claims to the level of scientifically rigorous laws or rules or the the scientific method. It actually brings mysticism into the scientific method. And... Actually, words, in a sense, can help to bring about an understanding of the divine or or a revealing of the deep structures of the soul. And 
Well, well, take 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 science as an example. Like think think of this. Say we've got say say we've got astronomy. So it's a natural science. So you you've got your telescope, and you look into the sky at the night, and you look at the stars, and you think, "Wow, isn't that beautiful?" So this is a pretty ABC sort of stock standard natural science. Now you look through your telescope. And you think, okay, well, I need to notate some of what I'm seeing. So I'll make some notes. And you do this all by yourself. And then your friend comes along and he says, oh, what are you doing there? And he says, oh, take a look. Look at this. And then he also looks through the telescope and he says, wow, that's amazing. Now, what are your notes there? And then they have a conversation. They says, well, you see how this is here and this is here? Well, I've called that this. This is the name for this. And we can work out this and now we can start putting measurements on it. We can start tracking things and we can start creating data. And then he thinks, oh, great, this is great. I'll go and get another telescope and we'll work together at the same, in the same way and we'll build up an understanding. Now, on the other side of the world... Someone also has a telescope. They're also looking into it, and they're also making notes. Now, at some point, what's going to happen is these two set of astronomers are going to bump into each other, and they're going to have their notes, they're going to have their experiences, and they're going to have a discussion about, well, okay, so you've used this word for this, and, and that actually really means this word. So we can just use the one word for the same thing and we can work that out. And actually you found something better and this is a better way of explaining it. So we can, ha- we can use how you've explained it to make it sort of the, the stock standard of what other astronomers want to learn about. And from there you have this huge complex of unfolding of the scientific method, which is vast and extraordinary and it's a whole literature it's a whole language astronomy is its own language so that if someone comes along and they say okay well i'd like to be an astronomer well then they say okay well now here's a big fat thick textbook where you have to learn all the terms and you have to learn and find all about and they say well great this is fascinating i love astronomy I'm going to find out all I can and I'm going to study. I'm going to do a PhD on astronomy. Then I'm going to go do research and I'm going to live near near one of these giant telescopes. An observation deck, I think they call it. I've forgotten what the word is for these giant telescopes. And of course, the telescope, well, it's got a history as well because, you know, Galileo did his thing and he said, well, look through this, this is my experience. And he said, you can have this experience too if you also look through it. But the problem was that when he went to make notes, it was also fitting into the value systems of the day, of the culture of the time. And that experience was so radical, so far outside anything that had been done or experienced by anyone up until that point, that the value system they had couldn't account for it. It literally broke open 
the value system. It was a fork in the road between science and religion. And that's why that's such a historic moment. That's why that's such an amazing moment in the history of humanity. So experience and science go hand in hand. Because we could say about the hard sciences, well, it'd be like saying, well, no, that's not real because you used a telescope or a microscope or an instrument that is that is like it's like walking into the science lab and says someone says look i saw this through my microscope and they say well well how do you know how do you know you saw it how can we trust you are we just going to take it on blind faith that you actually saw it and they say well no just take a look yourself and now the same thing this same process applies to mysticism, divine insight, spirituality. Because all over the world we have people not looking through telescopes, but looking within. They're looking into the nature of reality, into the nature of their subjective experience. And, well... Instead of making notes, they just talk. They just say what they've found. That's the equivalent of them making notes of the astronomer, the same notes of the astronomers who are starting a new science, the science of astronomy. And, well, there's crossover because sometimes they say, well, they put different labels on things which are really the same thing. And sometimes, well, multiple mystics do get together. And they do agree. There is a, this is the science of meditation. They agree. They say, now let's use this term and let's use this system and let's say that this means this and these are the indications of this level and these are the dynamics of these processes or stages and so on. And when someone comes along and says, oh, I'd like to learn about mysticism, they say, well, here's a big, fat, thick textbook so you can read it and learn all about it. <laughs> and you don't even need to buy... The good thing about mysticism is you don't need to buy it a multi-million dollar telescope. You can just sit on your cushion and look. <laughs> Meditation is cheaper than astronomy. <laughs> so that's always a good thing. So that's a pretty good answer. And when we talk about scientific method, we talk about Well, the parameters of the experiment, the hypothesis, the peer-reviewed process, the specific terms, the data, and the conclusion, the summary. And that's an ever-changing, ever-evolving process both in science and in mysticism. And then Treya says, well, they're all just schizophrenic, all these mystics. (laughs) She's playing devil's advocate, of course. But then, of course, the answer to this is, 
I don't think that well, well, we could say that there are some mystics that do have schizophrenic tendencies. And we can actually also say that there are schizophrenics that have mystical insights or mystical experiences. But we can't say that mystical experiences are primarily schizophrenic hallucinations. It must be a fair number. I mean, just by numbers alone. And just by looking at how these humans organize themselves. Like take take a whole bunch of a whole bunch of people and give them contemplative practices. And then all of a sudden you've somehow turned them into schizophrenics? I don't think so. And he says Ken Wilber says, well, he's got this example of the Zen master, Hakuin, who left behind him 83 fully transmitted students, so students who had received the divine, who then revitalized and organized Japanese Zen. And he says, quote, 83 hallucinating schizophrenics couldn't organize a trip to the toilet, let alone Japanese Zen, end quote. That's a very funny <laughs> that's a very funny example. And then her last objection, Treya's last objection objection as devil's advocate for this whole thing of spirituality exists, if you're not over the line yet, she says, well, it's a defense mechanism to shield a person from the horrors of mortality and finitude. And Wilbur says, well, yes, it is if it's merely believed in as a dogma or an idea or a hope, then it's part of someone's immortality project, their system of defense designed to magically or regressively ward off an impeding death or a fear of death. And the promise of a continuation in afterlife is as he tried to explain in, in his books, Up From Eden and A Sociable God. So you're right, in a sense, that spirituality is a defense mechanism. But here we come back to the importance of spiritual but not religious. So spirituality as a defense is really a relig- is religious religion as a defense. Whereas spirituality is is direct experience. So the mystics ask you to take nothing on belief, but they rather give you experiments to test with the cold, hard reality that is in front of you. So that rules it out of being a defense mechanism for something that's trying to be denied or hidden. So, that was point one of the perennial philosophy. Point two, spirit is within. There is a universe within. The stunning message of the mystics is that the is that in the very core of your being you are God. 
And technically speaking, it's not actually even within you or without you because there's only one. So spirituality or this experience that we're talking about transcends all duality. So this idea of, this is one of the things you encounter straight away is, well, when I turn in, or when you say a universe within, well, that in, in immediately defines in as, well, inside my skin, and outside is outside the skin. So in and out, so that's two things. But I have a universe within, but I'm God within, but there's only one God, there's only one universe. So what's this outside universe? And it's inquiring into this duality by turning in that actually dissolves the duality. And strangely, it's something that, in a sense, can't be realized. When we set someone off to say, okay, now go and look for the God within, it's a little bit like trying to tell a dog to chase its own tail or telling a dog to chase its own tail. Because it's already there. It's already present. It's already immediately whole. And the thing that stops you from realizing, according to Wilbur, this ever-present, ever-one God that is immediately here and eternal, is this individual self or ego. And when we say to you to go and look for it, well, that's just sort of building up this sense that you are this autonomous thing. And this just keeps you away from the supreme identity. And he also has this quote from St. Paul, which is, I live, not yet I, but Christ liveth in me. So the only way to discover God is to discover yourself. And then we come to sin, which is just another version of this self and other, or self little s and self big s. A little self, self with a small s being the thing that you think is you, which is your ideas, your desires, your body, your thoughts, your feelings, and the self as in the supreme self, self with a capital S, is the totality of everything. It's every single thing, literally. It includes all. Both the cosmos as what we think of cosmos with the C, as in the stars and the planets, and cosmos with a K, which is also not only the observable world, but the mental world as well, a world of thoughts and images and symbols. 
And suffering is not something that happens to the separate self. It's something that is inherent to the separate self. So it's not as if you are an individual going around doing bad things. It is that you are separate from the whole that is bad. And that's what sin is. It's the subject being apart from the world of objects out there. And it's this split between the totality of the all and the individual that causes this suffering. So the separate self is without love and it's grasping and it's desiring. And he talks about this quote. He's got this quote from William Law, who was a Christian mystic from England. And he says that, See here the whole truth in short, all sin, death, damnation, and hell is nothing but this kingdom of self, or the various operations of self-love, self-esteem, and self-seeking, which separate the soul from God and end in internal death and hell. That's a pretty good way to sum it up. If you have not seen the devil, look at your own self. So you are your own worst enemy. So this small self, this individual self, as another way of saying it's a knot, it's a contraction, it's a, it's a gnashing. We could even say that, well, sin is anywhere where there's not God, or hell is made by the fires of that which is without God. And that's the same thing as saying, well, the individual is separated from the all. And now we come to the fourth point in the perennial philosophy, which is the way to reverse the fall. How do we get out of this? How do we do this? So we we know that there's an individual self. We know that there's this all, which it's separated from, this small self is separated from. How do we get out of it? How do we become saved? How do we become enlightened? How do we end the suffering? And the basic answer is, well, meditation. It's the path of meditation. And Ken says, well, actually there are several paths that constitute what we're generally calling the path. Again, there's various surface structures sharing the same deep structures. For example, in Hinduism it says there are five major paths or yogas. Yoga simply means union, or a way to unite soul with Godhead. And in English, the word is yoke. When, the, when Christ says, my yoke is easy, he means my yoga is easy. We see the same root in Hittites, Yaguan, and Latin, Jiguam, the Greek, Zugon, and so on. So, union is the way to unite the soul with Godhead. And there are many paths, 
throughout the so paths would be see see this is the deceptive thing because we think path now is a path a surface structure or a deep structure and the answer is it's both because a deep structure is well that is that there is a path and the surface structure is well the instructions to walk the path according to the cultural stuff that's put onto it And then he has this quote which sums up, well, all of these paths because there are multiple paths. And he says this quote from Swami Ramdas. There are two ways, fundamentally. One is to expand your ego infinitely and the other is to reduce it to nothing. The former by knowledge and the latter by devotion. The Drani, or knowledge holder, says, I am God, the universal truth. The devotee says, I am nothing, O God. You are everything. End quote. And we see this. And I also wanted to mention that Swami Ramdas is different to Ramdas, as in Richard Albert. The American, the American guru, Ramdas, the American guru, is well. Well, he would be hip to this. He knows about this. But this quote is actually from Swami Ramdas, which is the Indian philosopher and mystic. And they're probably both worth knowing about. If you want to do extra reading, <laughs> if you want to follow up any of these leads, look up both Ramdas. American Guru and Swami Ramdas, Indian mystic. So we've got these two paths, which is I am God or you are everything. I am nothing. And we see this with every, every spiritual teacher. I am the way, the truth and the life, says Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, that's a pretty big ego, right? That's some pretty bold statement. That's as, that is as bold as it gets. No one can find God except through me. I know everything. And that is this example here of someone who has inflated their ego so much that it's become the all. And the other side of this, well, you have these people that say, I am nothing. I don't even exist. And in many ways, the people who realize that, they don't exist. They're transparent to existence. And modern, modern gurus, well, a, a guru like Osho, who I love to talk about and who I've learned so much from, He's got a little bit of both because there are times when Osho has said to certain people that, look, there's, he's basically said, look, there's no way you're going to, there's no way you're going to get it unless you completely surrender to me. Just give me everything you have. And then on the other hand, at other times, he has also 
taken the other stance, which is that he is nothing. And he tells his followers they are nothing. And they tell them, tells them to embrace this nothingness. And don't get this mixed up with the red meme ego inflation. So when we're talking about like a rap star or a rock star, this glorified <laughs> this glorified musician or this celebrity, someone like Kendrick Lamar who's saying, you know, I am a god. I am god. I am stoppable. Or or a Muhammad Ali, that's another another example. I am I am the greatest in the world. Now, that's a red meme ego inflation. That's that's the passion of emotions. That's not an identity expanding through all the layers of consciousness out to the universe. No. They still have actually, when they say I am the greatest, they still actually have a very small ego. They actually have a very small sense of self as compared to the cosmos. So that's a tricky one to look out for. It might sound like, oh, Osho and Ram Das and Swami Ram Das and these sort of spiritual teachers are in the same league as these rock stars and rap stars and Kendrick Lamar's and Eminem and these famous musicians. They're not. There's a difference there to understand. There's a nuance there to be understood. And they're both contending with identity. They're both contending. Well, this is what's so tricky about the word ego. Because when we say someone has a big ego, well, we're usually talking about the rock stars. But when we say, well, Jesus had a big ego because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, that's a very different thing. So the expansion of ego is much more nuanced in the world of mysticism than it is in the world of the rock stars. So when this small self dies, the big self is resurrected. And this kind of death and birth is described in many different ways by the traditions. And then we have, for example, in Christianity, the figures of Adam and Jesus. So if you look at Adam, what did he do? He's known as the old man or the outer man. And what, what was Adam's key defining lasting imp- in, uh, gift to humanity? Well, he brought sin to humanity. He ate the apple. So he opened the doors of hell. And then on the other hand, and he's, he's a man of the Old Testament. And then we have the, the new man, which is Jesus, which is the superman or the inner man. And what did he do? Well, he opened the doors to paradise. So... We've got this St. Augustine, Augustine quote here that said, God became man so that man may become God. And that's the difference between Adam and Jesus. And the small self 
of sin and the big self of salvation. So Zen calls this death the great death or satori. And the soul must be put to death. And it's only by making stepping stones of our death selves that we can realize that there is nothing which we can't identify as the true self, the big self. The kingdom of God is for nothing but the thoroughly dead, as Eckhart said. And dying to this small self is the discovery of eternity. And in this point in the conversation, Ken stops. Because he realizes that the woman he loves, who is in a finite body, might die of cancer. The small self dying to the big self for eternity is seen exactly in his relationship with his most beloved wife, this most beautiful woman. And it takes him a moment to carry on with the interview because this is such a hard realization for him. And one thing he has to clarify is, well, eternity is not an everlasting length of time, but a point without time. So the so-called eternal present, or timeless now, is what we mean by eternity. So it's that which is beyond time. And what do we say about God? God is beyond time and space. God is eternal. Which brings us to our sixth point. Sixth point, which is that enlightenment brings the end of suffering. And Buddhism deals with this very well because the Buddha said that he only taught two things, what causes suffering and how to end it. And the cause of suffering is the grasping, the desiring of that separate self. And what ends it is, well, the meditative practice that transcends this and brings you back to your inner God or your ultimate self. And the seventh point, which is that enlightenment brings to social action driven by mercy and compassion in skillful means, an attempt to help all beings to attain the supreme liberation. If we were all just not so much caught up in our own lives, we would be able to help each other. If it weren't for the fact that we're just stuck in ourselves 
our small selves, our little selves, then we would be free to live in a paradise for all sentient beings. Now, there's another footnote here, which I'd like to go into, which is very interesting. Because we can sit back and we can look at all this and we can say, okay, so we've got this perennial philosophy. We've got all these ideas about what it means and how these religions all agree on certain things and there are universal truths. Okay, but we've also got this postmodern meme or this sort of postmodern manifestation which is known as politically correct thinking. So the postmodernists, they often leave out or they're not aware of the perennial the perennial philosophy because you could say, okay, so what you're saying, Dosta, is that the perennial philosophy is pluralistic. So we embrace all religions and all cultures. Sounds like pluralism. Sounds like the postmodern meme. Well, no, not exactly. Because the politically correct postmodern meme gets it wrong. And here's how. Because they think that a radically egalitarian and pluralistic worldview means that there can't be something better. It means there can't be something higher. And this, in its worst form, turns into something reactionary. It's something that's always saying, no, you can't be better. No, we can't have a liberal agenda. No, we can't improve things. We can't compare the state of affairs or have a blueprint for something because that would be unfair. That would be unegalitarian. And this is incoherent. This is just not going to work. It's just not going to fly. We're not going to get anywhere with this kind of attitude. And these sort of politically correct postmodernists say could could even say, well, these things that are better or these things that you're trying to push are Eurocentric and logocentric. And yet the perennial philosophy, on the other hand, and this, this is how it should be, the perennial philosophy actually first arose in a matriarchy. So it can't be charged with inherent sexism. And it arose in illiterate people. It arose in the people that, you know, Jesus wasn't educated. It arose in the people that were living in the slums, living in the underdeveloped pre-modern world. So it's not logocentric, it's not knowledge-centered. This is not some high philosophy that's trying to dominate cultures. No, it's from the very base of the cultures. And it also first flourished in countries which are now second and third world countries. Countries like India. India is very poor. India is poverty-stricken. 
countries like Africa. Where was where was Swami Ramdas from? He was Indian. Where was Jesus from? He was from Nazareth. So the politically correct postmodern meme doesn't understand this nuance of postmodernism or pluralism, which includes the ability to say some things are better than others. And we say that with still having a respect to sex, race, religion, and culture. And it's very important to understand that. It's a, that is a big issue. I think at the time that Ken Wilber wrote this, you know, this, this is a footnote in this book at this time. But since then, this has become a huge issue. And actually, Ken Wilber's written a whole book just on this one footnote, which is Boomeritis. It's the story of, well, the postmodern meme and its pathologies and how pluralism can go wrong and how pluralism can arrest and suppress certain value spheres. So it's a big issue. It's a big thing to be aware of. And probably in this time, or what's current at the moment, is, well, Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson is a public intellectual who's made his social commentaries on this exact thing. And we could say, well, is Jordan Peterson integral? Not exactly. Is he pluralistic in this nuanced kind of sense? Well, not exactly. We could say he's actually more traditionalist. But this is a tangent. This is a big tangent. So let's just plant a flag there and say that the postmodern meme and pluralism is a big one that we're going to come back to at certain points. But here in this novel, it's just a footnote in which it's contrasted to the perennial philosophy and these seven tenets that we've been talking about. And so they have this conversation. And isn't that wonderful that Treya and Ken can talk about these things? And the last thing in this chapter, which we'll end with, is that Treya talks about a mystical experience she had when she was 13. So this is her first-hand account of what happened to her. And she says this, quote, I was 13. I was sitting in front of a fireplace by myself watching the fire. And all of a sudden, I became the smoke from the fire. And I began to rise up into the sky higher and higher until I became one with all space. And Ken asks, you were no longer identified with your individual self and body. And she says, I completely dissolved. I became one with everything. There was no individual self at all. And he says, were you still conscious? And she answers, wide awake. And he says, but that was very real, right? To which she says, completely real. 
It felt like I was coming home, like I was finally where I belonged. I know all the names for this. I had found my real self, or God, or Tao, and so on. But I didn't know those terms then. I only knew it was home. I was perfectly safe, or saved, I guess. This wasn't a dream. Everything else seemed like a dream. The ordinary world seemed like a dream. This was real. End quote. So that moment for her was significant because it became the guiding true north for her and her lifelong interest in meditation and spirituality. And it was also part of her changing her name to Treya from Terry. And it was actually also part of the strength and the courage with which she would face cancer. And the last thought that we'll share from this chapter is that Treya is thinking that one of the reasons she gets so restless is that because her real interests lie within So she's someone with an extraordinarily profound intuition of the divine. And it's personal, it's individual, and it's completely unique to Treya. And she is intelligent enough to identify this subjective experience within herself as something that is correlated with the perennial philosophy. And that's what it means to have a universe within. And that's all I have to say for now. <laughs>